Unlike many of the other early Christian texts, the Gospel of John emphasizes the name of the Father alongside the name of Jesus. Why? One reason, says Joshua Kutz, is because of the significance of God's name in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Join us as we talk with Joshua Kutz about his recent publication, The Divine Name in the Gospel of John. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Joshua Kutz completed his PhD at the University of Edinburgh in 2016. Along with the divine name in the Gospel of John, he has published a number of articles in academic journals, including Currents in Biblical Research and Scottish Bulletin of Evangelical Theology. Joshua has taught at Regent College in Vancouver, Edinburgh Theological Seminary, Cornhill Training School in Glasgow, Prairie College in Alberta, and Evangelical Bible College in Zambia. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Joshua, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book on the Gospel of John. Sure. Well, uh, ever since my undergraduate degree, I was fascinated with the Gospels. Um, After my master's, I got particularly interested as well in the use of the Old Testament in the New. So both of those elements came into this project. Um, my doctoral supervisor, Larry Hurtado, his work on early Christology, I think, was sort of another piece that that um, intrigued me, uh, particularly in John. Um, and John's use of glory language to characterize his presentation of Jesus on the cross and his return, I think, was uh, just kind of the sense of the palpable encounter that, that John has with, with, with God, with Jesus, that he wants his readers to be able to experience as well. I was particularly intrigued by that. So those are some elements that came together, I think, in my initial interest for this uh, this project. Um, you know, John says we we beheld his glory. Uh, as I got into it, I think some of the, the heightened rhetoric surrounding John's presentation of, of Jesus is a more explicit Christology in John um, that requires some explanation. We get a different thing in John than we get in the synoptics. Um, so I began focusing on glory and kind of the John's dependence on scripture for that. And as I got into the project, it sort of shifted. Um, I recognized that there was kind of a conceptual cluster of ideas uh, of which glory is just a part, but uh, included within that is God's name and, and the arm of the Lord, which seemed to function similarly in John's thinking and his sort of presentation of, of Jesus. Uh, and that, that became quite big um, to sort of take all those at once. So I narrowed it down and focused on, on God's name. And I was particularly intrigued by um, why John is so attracted, attracted to the category of God's name, I guess. It's, it's sort of the top shelf in Jewish tradition, you know, the center of Jewish faith and practice. And just intrigued why John sort of picks that up and deploys it in his presentation of Jesus. So those are some of the, the interests and, and some of the, sort of shifts that happened in my thinking as I, as I got into it. The title of your book is The Divine Name in the Gospel of John. What do you mean by the divine name? Sure. Well, in the first instance, by divine name, I'm using, uh, I'm referring to name language in John's Gospel when it's used in reference to God the Father as opposed to uh, Jesus. Um, so in a few places in John, Jesus makes statements such as, you know, come in the name of the Father or Father, glorify your name. Uh, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, he's praying for his disciples in chapter 17, and he says, you know, I've, I've made known your name, uh, your name which you gave me, praying to the Father. Um, 
So kind of name language used in reference to the Father. But how John uses this language really suggests that he is kind of deploying the category with the full freight of its sort of Old Testament significance, or at least coming out of the Jewish tradition. Uh, I think it would be impossible for you know, Jewish readers to pick up John's gospel, see reference to the name of the Father or God's name, and not think, at least in the first instance, of, of the covenant name Yahweh as kind of the referent underlying that. But John's not, you know, when, when Jesus prays, Father, I've made known your name, he's not saying, uh, you know, I told the, your, my disciples how to spell the Tetragrammaton or something like that. It's, uh, there's a deeper significance going on here. Um, if you go back to Israel scriptures and and God's name is often tied with his self-revelation. So in the Exodus um, tradition, the sovereignty of God uh, displayed in his deliverance of his people um, from Egypt is tied to this repeated statements in Exodus, I am the Lord. They will all know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Uh, that's linked in with, with God's self-disclosure to, to Moses, of course, at the burning bush, I am, or I am he is... Uh, it's picked up in later traditions. So it's got a kind of revelatory connotations to it. Um, and as a consequence, it has some, for John, some sort of eschatological significance because God had revealed himself. Uh, and a way of talking about that was revealing his name in, in Exodus. And it's picked up in Isaiah and other places. He sort of links that in with, with the presentation of Jesus as being a disclosure of, of God. But in Jewish tradition, there's also... Uh, you know, God's name, because it is tied to God himself and that key Exodus narrative, um, it had a variety of functions for Jewish faith and practice. It's at the center for, for them. So it's you know, the cultic uh, confession, you know, uh, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, our Lord. Um, and the Jews would, or the Israelites would, would pray, they'd glorify the name, they would call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, it would sort of function to uh, to signify God's ownership of his people. You know, his name is put on his people, or it's put on the, the, the headband of the high priest to signify that he's set apart, or set it, the name is set in the temple to signify God's presence there. And so it became a marker of covenant fidelity. You know, Hosea talks about walking in the name of the Lord. Ezekiel talks about sanctifying God's name, which is bound up with how Israel comports themselves you know, before the before the nation. So it's kind of a as a as a functional dimension to to the name. And I think aspects of this are picked up uh, by John. He's deploying the name concept uh, with its sort of full uh, freight, I guess you could say. But I, what I found really interesting is that you know early Christian texts um, exhibit a shift already towards Jesus' name as kind of a divine name. Um, a lot of the, the freight of, of the Old Testament sort of divine name concept gets applied to Jesus in, in texts like the Synoptics or Acts, where you, know, you believe in Jesus' name, you're baptized into Jesus' name, you cast out demons or are healed in Jesus' name. In, in Acts, to call on the name of the Lord actually means to call on Jesus. So interesting kind of Christological interpretation of Joel chapter 2 going on there. Um, and closely related to that, of course, is how Lord language or kurios uh, gets applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So it's a circumlocution for, for Yahweh that, that gets applied to Jesus as early as Paul. Paul's use of scripture, David Capes has pointed this out, as well as others. So there's a shift already to, 
to Jesus' name or to Lord language being applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And uh, by contrast, there's a real dearth of name language referring exclusively to God but Father in the New Testament, which I found a bit surprising as I got into this. Um, if you think about the Synoptic Gospels, there's really only a couple places where that language is used in connection to God. Uh, there's a quote from Psalm 118 in Jesus' triumphal entry when he said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, Hallowed be your name. So apart from that, you know, we've got the end of Matthew baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But apart from that, that's about all you have in the Synoptics. There's very few references elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, to God's name. So about 20, 20 uh, references to God's name that do not occur in citations of, of Scripture, and of those, seven are in, in John's Gospel, um, all New Testament references. And if we sort of expand the, the remit to just references to the divine name in general in all first century Christian texts, there's maybe about 37. I'm, I'm speaking here of sort of name language in reference to the Father. Um, and eight of those occur in John's Gospel, that's about a quarter. So kind of a disproportional in, uh, focus on this in, in John. But what's interesting is that John also exhibits the kind of characteristic Christian emphasis on Jesus' name. Uh, so in John's Gospel, you believe in Jesus' name, you have a life in his name, you, you pray to the Father, ask the Father in Jesus' name. So John is sort of... Uh, including that in his gospel, but he's sort of retrieving what we might think of superficially as a kind of a traditional way of talking about God vis-a-vis -vis name language. And in some cases, it seems like the, the Old Testament divine name functions are kind of bifurcated or split, divided between the Father and the Son and John. So for instance, in the Old Testament, you would you'd call on the name of the Lord because you know it, because it's been revealed to you. In John's gospel, you have the name revealed to you by Jesus, uh, but it's the name of the Father that's revealed to you, but then you pray to the Father in Jesus' name. So some of those sort of functions that in the Old Testament were associated with God alone are sort of split between Father and Son. So it's an interesting kind of um, way into thinking about John's Christology, and I was intrigued by why John has recovered this, this emphasis on, on God's name. John's use of the divine name, you suggest, was strongly influenced by the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Can you explain that connection for us? Yeah, so this is a big, uh, an important part of, of the argument of my book. Um, part of the struggle here that I found is, is the language of influence. Because um, John is influenced by, I think, a variety of traditions and, and sources. Um, so if you take, for example, you know, Jesus prays in John 17, Father, keep them in your name, which you gave me. This idea of God giving his name to Jesus is, is striking, but it's not new for John. I mean, Paul uses similar language in Philippians chapter 2, right? So there's some, uh, although we don't know that John was necessarily influenced by Paul directly, he may well have been, or sort of picked that up from, from Christian tradition. Um, although, interestingly, the way that that language functions is different between, uh, between Paul and and John. So for Paul, the giving of the name to Jesus is a consequence of his faithful obedience to God on the cross, whereas in John's gospel, it seems to be a prerequisite for the mission on which Jesus comes. So when you, if you look at, these, uh, at the language of John superficially, um, there's lots of 
overlap between other texts. But what I wanted to do is to sort of tease apart um, various kinds of influences by focusing on the, the different ways that the language functions and what it means and its um, significance. Um, just to give like another example, sort of broader influence on John before I get to Isaiah, um, there's a lot of Jewish traditions in which uh, we have a divinely authorized agent who is, seems to be endowed with God's name, probably arising from uh, Exodus 23, where God says, I'll send my angel in front of you and um, I'll be with him because my name is in him. So listen to what he, what he has to say. So you have texts like the Apocalypse of Abraham picking that up and the, the, angel, the angelic figure of Yahuwah is describing himself as having God's ineffable name in him. But in those, in those passages, um, the sort of name being sort of vested in these figures seems to have primarily a function of authorizing them um, for the, a particular role. And so the significance is a little bit different than it, than it has in John. So when you come to John, um, Jesus is given God's name. Uh, seems to be he's given the name that in, in order that he may preserve believers in that name that he's been given. So when you pray, Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me. Um, the name giving is tied to his mission, which in the context of John's gospel is is eschatological in import and significance. And it's it also has a bit of a what I've termed as from associative significance in John. So when Jesus prays, you know, keep them in your name, uh, that language is is really similar to uh, other passages in John where believers are described as abiding in Jesus or they are to believe in him. Um, and that might suggest that to be kept in the name means that it, we are to be preserved in our sort of fidelity to the revelation that Jesus is the, uh, the one who comes from the Father, and particularly perhaps even that he's, he himself has been given the name. We're kept in fidelity to the fact that he is endowed with God's name. Um, in other words, the, the name giving in John 17 is, seems to be constitutive of what Jesus reveals. It's not merely authorization for revelation, like we get in some of the other Jewish texts. So although there are several influences on, on John's language, I was interested in primarily in the, uh, the primary sort of impetus or catalyst for his interest in the category. So this is where Isaiah comes in, because if you if you kind of break down the different aspects of uh, names, so the, the referent of the name, I think, is Yahweh, but John's doing more than just that. Um, the meaning of the name will have a particular meaning in, in, in the context. There's different functions the name might have, like to authorize Jesus' permission or something like that. And then the significance uh, of the name is... is uh, uh, something we can derive from the location or the role that some of these name statements in John have within the broader narrative. And when you sort of tease apart those different aspects of the name, I think it becomes clear that most of the influences on John come in at the level of meaning or function. Um, but the significance that the name has for John, primarily being eschatological um, and associative, is not accounted for if you appeal simply to prior Christian tradition like Paul or other Jewish traditions like the, the name angel traditions. Um, so where does that significance come from? Why is, is the name for John uh, a fundamentally eschatological category? 
By that I mean, you know, when Jesus prays in John 12, Father, glorify your name, this occurs at kind of the climax of his mission. It's at the moment when his hour has arrived. It's at that moment that he says, now is the hour, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, now is the time, glorify your name. It seems to have a kind of a temporally grounded significance there. Where did that come from, I guess, is what I was um, interested in. And, and so far as I can tell, that that must come from Isaiah, I think, primarily. So that piece, that dimension of, of uh, name language of John comes from Isaiah. Uh, if you go to passages like, Isaiah 52, verse 6, God says, in that day, my people will know my name. In that passage, it's kind of eschatologically framed. This is something that will happen in the future. Name language is deployed. Um, And what is interesting is that that language in Isaiah, particularly in Deutero-Isaiah, so Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, upon which John is demonstrably dependent for various aspects of his gospel, um, in those in those chapters, this concept of God's name being glorified is tied closely together with kind of a parallel idea of God's glory being revealed. So you go back to Isaiah 40, you know, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, will be manifested, just like the name, God's name will be manifested. That's a passage, of course, on which John the Baptist draws in John chapter 1. And when John says that Isaiah saw his glory... In, in chapter 12, he's a, you know, referencing in the first instance Isaiah 6. It's the scene in Isaiah has a vision of God seated on the throne. But I think it, for John, takes in the whole of, of Isaiah's vision, which includes this promise in Isaiah 40 that one day the glory of God will be revealed. Everybody's going to see it. Um, so it's tied to glory language. It's also tied to uh, a striking expression in Isaiah uh, that's repeated, where God says, I, I am he, you will know that I am he, and that day you will know that I am he. And that, it's been demonstrated uh, by Catherine Williams, David Ball, and others, that John's I am sayings are, are derived principally from these passages in Isaiah. God looks ahead and says, I, everyone's going to see, or at least my people will know that, that I am, that I am, that I am he. Um, and it's also tied, thirdly, to to the language of the arm of the Lord. This idea of God sort of revealing his glory and his name is bound up with the emergence of uh, of a servant figure who in chapter 52 and 53 is is identified as God's very arm. Um, So this kind of cluster of concepts, glory, name, I am, he, uh, and arm language works together as a kind of conceptual set of sort of eschatological revelation in Isaiah. And it's interesting that that whole set uh, appears in John's gospel. So he's big on glory language. We've got this sort of uh, eschatological framing of God's name. We have I am sayings. And then in John 12, John tells us that uh, identifies Jesus in his ministry with, with citation from Isaiah 53, to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed. So it's, it's it was a difficult to... I'd have to sort of build up a, an argument for this because John doesn't explicitly cite Isaiah in connection with any of his name language. Um, but then he's not wont to do that. He's, he's, uh, he tends to allude to scripture rather than cite explicitly. That's more his style. And uh, so this seems to be the way that he's engaging with this really rich concept in Isaiah. And in, in my book, I go into more detail about 
how it's not just direct contact with Isaiah, but sort of Isaiah as interpreted in later Jewish tradition. There's, John's not the only one to see some of these links in this conceptual set. Uh, the Septuagint translator seems to see some of these things. Uh, we see hints of it in Qumran, Psalms of David, especially in Wadina, um, which picks up the servant figure and connection with glory language and the idea of God's name being revealed. So uh, a mouthful there, but that's essentially kind of the heart of the argument for why I see Isaiah underlying John's use of the divine name category, uh, or at least where he gets some of the significance of the name from. Let's talk about the significance of the divine name in John's gospel. You find that the divine name is associated with the idea of revelation. How is the revelation of the divine name developed in John's gospel? Sure, yeah. So we've got, um, I think there's a, a, a first hint we have of that in the prologue in, in chapter 1, verse 14. Um, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know, the prologue goes on to compare or contrast Jesus with, with Moses and to say that no one can ever see God um, except the one who's come from God. And most commentators have recognized in these verses uh, a significant engagement with that Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses asks to see God's glory. Uh, he can't see his face, but he can see his, his back. And what he actually ends up getting is God disclosing his name, um, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, which is full of mercy and faithfulness, which is probably... Um, what John is alluding to when we see him saying that we beheld his glory. That's what Moses wanted to see. We beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. It's the language of grace and truth being a drawing on mercy and faithfulness from Exodus 34. Um, so there's a hint there that the disclosure of God's name, that is his character, which is exhibited in, in how he treats his people who are you know, about to are, are engaging in covenant infidelity at the moment of that conversation. Um, but that is sort of embodied in the person of Jesus. Uh, we saw his glory, John says. So we get a hint right there in the prologue. Um, but then the two kind of key moments in the gospel where this really becomes explicit are in two kind of climaxes of, of the gospel. Chapter 12, which brings to a head Jesus' public ministry, and then chapter 17, which is the end of the farewell discourse, so-called farewell discourse with his disciples before the, before the passion. So in, in John 12, uh, as I think I mentioned already, it, Jesus uh, is, uh, is approached by some Greeks who want to see him, which is interesting language in connection with we have seen his glory. They want to see Jesus, and Jesus sees this as a signal that his eschatological hour has arrived the moment for which he came to this earth has, has arrived. This is now the climax of, of the narrative of the gospel. It's, it's when things come to a head. And so at this moment, he prays to the Father, glorify your name. And a voice booms from heaven, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Which is a really interesting statement because Jesus has just said a few verses earlier, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Um, so there seems to be an interesting uh, juxtaposition of the glorification of the Son of Man, that is Jesus, and God's name, um, or God himself. 
And there we see kind of the, the way in which I think John sees the name category as, as, as a sort of built-in duality to it, or it's, it's associative, as, as I, the sort of language that I use. Um, it, it can be applied to the Father and the Son at the same time sort of a bridge concept between the two, as if to say that both the Father and the Son are somehow being disclosed in the climax of, of Jesus' mission, uh, which is a fundamentally eschatological uh, disclosure um, significance, which comes from, from Isaiah. So that's in chapter 12. And then in chapter 17, as Jesus looks back over his earthly mission and um, reflects on what he's done. There's a lot of retrospective comments in, in that prayer. Um, and Jesus summarizes his whole earthly mission by saying, what have I done? I've, I've made known your name. Um, as if to say that all that Jesus had achieved in this earthly mission was to disclose the name of God or to disclose God's character or to exhibit the action of God himself. Um, and this is, this is particularly striking because name revelation is seems to be a divine prerogative. It's something that only God alone does. Like God, God's the only one who reveals His own name. I've not found any other Jewish text. It's something that God alone does. So this, this sort of language of the revelation of God being founded by Jesus sort of invests a tremendous legitimacy in Jesus and His mission. And it might even legitimate uh, the use of Jesus' own name in prayer, which He's sort of offered His disciples in chapter sixteen. You know, ask the Father in My name. Well, why should we use your name? What what power legitimacy does your name have in prayer? Well, Jesus is the one who discloses the Father's name. So um, it's sort of a summary of Jesus' earthly mission. And that kind of dovetails with chapter 12, where the glorification of God's name is the climax of Jesus' mission. So the, the language shows up in these sort of key moments um, as a kind of way of summarizing Jesus' whole, uh, whole mission. And then in verse 26 of chapter 17, um, Jesus mentions again that he has revealed God's name, but then he says, I, I will reveal it uh, again. Uh, so he sort of uh, casts for, uh, a glance forward into the future, uh, subsequent generations of believers who also will be able to participate in uh, receiving or, or getting in on the, this eschatological disclosure of God's self, God's name, God's very character, which I think probably... I think probably begins with Jesus' resurrection appearances. Um, you know, the, the the disciples who first see Jesus, what do they say? What do they confess? Uh, they say, "I saw the Lord," which is the first time you got hakurios, sort of a, the articular form of um, the, that designation occurring in John. Um, and I don't think by that he means that necessarily solely that Jesus is Lord, but perhaps that seeing Jesus is seeing the Lord because they share the same name, um, which is what Jesus says in, in chapter 14, right? That he who's seen me has seen the Father. Um, so this kind of name revelation is extended to later believers, uh, beginning with Jesus' own resurrection, but I think perpetuated through through the Spirit. And somehow in, in mission, believers participate in this revelation of the character and activity of God uh, in the world more broadly. And so we sort of are believers are uh, included in, in what Isaiah was talking about. You don't miss out just because you didn't happen to be in the generation that could physically see Jesus, which is part of John's broader concerns pastorally speaking as well. Joshua, you also explain that believers are kept in the name given to Jesus. Can you summarize that thought for us? 
Yeah, so it's an intriguing little uh, couple of verses in chapter 17, the middle of the prayer. <clears throat> and um, Jesus says, Father, keep them in your name, which you gave me. And there's two pieces to that. One is keep them in your name. And then there's the which you gave me part. Um, now, the, the keep them in your name part is translated variously. Um, some some have translated it like protect them by your name, taking it in taking the the data there in kind of instrumental way. But it's uh, probably best to render this as a keep them or preserve them in your name. Uh, and that that sort of ties this language into uh, the language of abiding in Jesus or believing in His name, as I mentioned earlier, and related to believers keeping Jesus' words, which is language that's used uh, a few verses earlier in, in chapter seventeen. So I think to be kept in the name of the Father means to be kept faithful to the revelation of the Father that came through Jesus. And as a consequence of being faithful to that revelation, we are believers are protected from evil. In other words, the divine name in John's gospel is the, the locus or the uh, sort of center point of fidelity to God. And that's not different from the Old Testament. It's was central to Jewish faith and practice in, in the Jewish tradition. So that is carried over into John's gospel. But of course, now fidelity being measured in terms of fidelity to the name of God uh, has built into it the fact that this name is, is a shared name. So that's where the second part of the phrase comes in. Keep them in your name, which you gave me. Uh, that's, that's sort of now constitutive of the name itself, the fact that it is a given name, a name that's given to Jesus. And so I think for John, um, this kind of functions as an identity marker for believers. They are Believers are those who are in the name of the Father, um, which picks up on the function of the name in, in various Old Testament texts. You know, in Numbers 6, where the name is put on to the people of God. In Isaiah 44, you're branded with God's name. Um, so that's not unlike the, the Old Testament. Um, and in John's gospel, where you are is uh, kind of closely tied to who you are. So people are always asking Jesus, where do you come from? Uh, and they're always asking, who are you? And those questions go together, and they also go together for believers. So if you're in the name, that says something about who you are as well. So you're located in, in the name. In other words, you're, you're located in the sort of central locus of, of fidelity to God, which is characterized by sort of giving this of the name to Jesus. And this is all this is all bound up with Jesus' mission as well. So Jesus comes to make known the Father. That's at the, one of the central fixtures of his mission, to disclose the Father and to save uh, the world, to, to preserve um, life, to give life to believers. Those are kind of two poles of or two sort of aspects or sides of Jesus' mission. And so both of those parts are sort of summarized in, in the name language in John 17, when Jesus says, I've, I've revealed your name. Uh, and then he says, Father, keep them in your name. So you have the kind of revelation piece and the saving or preserving or giving life to peace, uh, attached specifically to divine name language. So clearly John makes much use of the divine name in his gospel. Tell us now why you think the Gospel of John gives so much emphasis to this subject. Well, yeah, it's a. Um, I think a part of the book is to make a case that he makes much of the name because I think in 
in, in a lot of translations, they'll sort of gloss over the name language in the Greek and just say, you know, God himself or something like that. So it's a sort of a plug for the importance of the original languages, um, I suppose, things that we miss in translation. Um, but yeah, he does make a, a much of, of uh, God's name. And I think this is particularly striking when you compare it to other first century Christian texts, like I mentioned earlier, uh, especially the closest related texts to John being the synoptics. Um, which just makes it clear to us that this is not kind of the default approach. This is not sort of the only way of writing a gospel. This is unique. This is a distinctive. So why does John use or deploy the, the divine name category as he does? And I think there are, it's what I argue in the book, there's two, two prongs to, or two sort of aspects of answering this, uh, conceptual uh, reason and a socio-historical reason. So I think the kind of conceptual reason why John is so uh, places such emphasis on, on this category is that he is convinced that the divine name is an associative category, okay, so it has a built-in duality to it, um, and it's a, an eschatological category. That's sort of the, the, the primary impetus or catalyst for his interest in the name, and I think he gets both of those pieces from Isaiah. Um, as I as I mentioned earlier, um, and there's other features of his name language that you know is drawing on wider tradition, including Christian and, and Jewish tradition. But that kind of driving catalyst comes from Isaiah. So the associative part of that, the fact that the name has a, a built-in duality to it, um, you go to Isaiah, and, and, and God's name is intriguingly bound up with the role of the servant, especially in chapters 42 and, and 52, but there's hints in Isaiah 49 and 50. And this becomes clearer when you, when you compare the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. The Septuagint translator draws out some of the linkages a bit more clearly there. And, and first Enoch, as I mentioned as well, picks up the sort of servant language and in the, in the figure of the chosen one. Um, who the chosen one in First Enoch, uh, especially chapter sixty-nine, is is revealed in conjunction with the revelation of a secret divine name. So there's a um, interesting kind of tradition history there of the name being a way of talking about two distinguishable figures because it's separable from both of them, and therefore as a way of talking about both of them uh, at the same time. So I think John gets that piece of it um, from Isaiah. And you see you know, hints of that kind of associative significance to the name in passages like John 12, where uh, you know, Jesus can say on the one hand, now's the time for the Son to be glorified, and then pray in the next breath, Father, glorify your name, as if you know, he's saying one and the same thing. And then the, the eschatological piece, uh, I think, also derives principally from Isaiah, where God says things like, you know, in that day, my people will know my name. Now that's Isaiah 52, 6. Um, and the context of Isaiah 52 and 53 more generally is all over John 12. Um, it's explicitly cited in, in verse 40, but there's various other sort of allusions and, and hints to that text in, in John 12. So it's clear that John's engaging with that passage there in a, in a context in which the glorification of God's name becomes uh, the focal point. So, and these two, sort of the associative and the eschatological significance that John derives from Isaiah, they work together for John. Uh, and through both of them, John is conveying essentially how Jesus is 
basically stitched into the action and character of God himself. Um, so that's, that's the kind of conceptual reason uh, or the conceptual explanation for John's interest in the category that he was it's just the conviction that the name is fundamentally associative and eschatological uh, because for John, Jesus is the eschatological climax and is bound up with, with God, the father, the name, as he understood it from Isaiah gave him a sort of a great way of articulating that. Um, so that's kind of the first part of the answer. And um, like the second explanation for why John is so drawn to the category is a bit more speculative, um, but it has a lot uh, uh, of explanatory power as well. I think that John's attraction to, to the divine name category was, was piqued um, by the experience of believers towards the end of the first century. So as many commentators have noted, there's perhaps you know, reflected in John an experience of some opposition to, to believers in Jesus because of their devotion to Jesus. And I can imagine you know, at the end of the first century that devotion to Jesus would probably have elicited amongst Jews um, the charge of blasphemy, in particular against God's name. Uh, and you can imagine passages of Scripture being thrown at Christians, particularly from Isaiah, which has some of the most stridently uh, sort of quote-unquote, monotheistic text where the exclusivity of God is stressed. We have an example of this in, in uh, Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, where uh, it's a second-century text, but it's, Trifo uh, is purported to say to, to Justin, how could you, you know, have some rever- such reverence for Jesus when God explicitly says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. And there's other examples of this kind of thing um, that Christians would be experiencing. So if if they're being charged with blasphemy against God's name and they're having passages, particularly from Isaiah, thrown at them, um, you can imagine uh, that Isaiah and the divine name in particular would become sort of sensitive areas, sort of touch point issues for Christians uh, that John knows and that he is uh, uh, writing on behalf of or to or has them in mind as he writes, perhaps. Um, and John, what he does in his gospel is to demonstrate how both Isaiah and the divine name actually are on Jesus' side. Um, so in John 12, we read that Isaiah wrote about him, that he wrote about Jesus. The divine name is given to him. And therefore, if that's the case, then to reject Jesus is to go against Isaiah, it's to go against Moses is to go against Abraham, which is exactly what happens in John. Um, and to reject Jesus is to is tantamount to blaspheming the name because he's the one who's been endowed with God's name. Um, and this is the kind of argument that Justin Martyr gives when he's replying to, to Trifo in that passage I mentioned earlier. He says, well, yeah, of course, God doesn't give glory to anybody else, but course he gives glory to his own name because he says i'm the lord that is my name my glory i give to no other that is no no other besides the name which he identifies implicitly with jesus it's the kind of argument that that john is making so um as a response to that kind of opposition um john presents jesus in terms of this rich category 
And, and that would have a tremendous sort of comforting function for his readers as well, perhaps as they're feeling, especially, you know, second and third generation believers um, who haven't had the privilege of seeing Jesus in person, maybe wondering if they've got something wrong, maybe feeling a bit abandoned, as is reflected in John 14. Don't worry, Jesus says, I'll not leave you as orphans, I'm coming to you. Um, there's a great pastoral comfort in, comfort in knowing that what we have in Jesus is the eschatological disclosure of God's name, which is at the heart of you know, the whole expectation of Israel's scriptures. And John can sort of levy the whole comforting function of Isaiah and those texts in which these promises occur um, by, by bringing it to bear in the context of his presentation uh, of Jesus. Um, so, in other words, John's saying to his readers, you're not missing out. Um, and actually, this revelation of God's name didn't stop with Jesus' earthly ministry, but extends beyond that as perpetuated by, by the Spirit and, and through, through the mission that you are incorporated into. So it's a, it's a great example, I think, of early Christians bringing Scripture, their Scriptures, to bear both on their experience of Jesus and on their social and pastoral context. Joshua, before letting you go, can you tell us about any new projects on your plate? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, enjoying working on a, an essay at the moment on the use of Exodus uh, in John. Uh, it's for an edited volume coming out with Burrow in a year or two. Um, and just beginning to sketch sort of the outline of a, of a bigger project I'm interested in doing on discipleship, uh, according to John. I think John has a distinctive way of framing the issues that we categorize as kind of under, under the heading of discipleship, and I, which I think is something really helpful for us today. Um, and I'm, I'm also um, working on sort of extending some of this, uh, this project, the divine name on, in John, more broadly to earliest Christianity, um, and see how so that plays out on a bit of a broader uh, backdrop. Joshua, thank you for your time and for your insights on John's gospel. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.